Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Phil at the Movies. I'm your host, Phil Walsh, and you're listening to episode number 60 of this ongoing podcast series that is for the love of movies. The big 6-0, that is is today's episode, and certainly got a a treat for you today revisiting one of my favorite films and, and arguably one of the greatest sequels ever made, The Empire Strikes Back. But uh, before I I take you back to that galaxy far, far away, wanted to take this opportunity, as I often do, to say thank you to you, the listeners, to you, the friends of this show, for tuning in each week and hearing what I have to say about movies and cinema. I know I've said it probably a million times at this point, probably sixty times at this uh, uh, at this juncture, but uh, it, it comes from the. Uh, comes from the heart, and I, I know I probably sound like a broken record at this point, but uh, just thank you for, for tuning in. Thank you for being a part of this uh, this cinematic journey. This, uh, this passion project of mine began long, long time ago, and uh, I've enjoyed every minute of it, but I have enjoyed even more so the connections that have been made. So for your support, for your encouragement, and most importantly for your friendship, I say thank you, thank you, and thank you. And uh, before we uh, hop aboard the Millennium Falcon and, and return to the year 1980, I want to also give a plug and a shout-out to another uh, podcast that I co-host with my two friends, Chris Evans and Anthony Caruso. We do a show called DC Unlimited. I've probably mentioned it a few times in the past, but it's it's focused on all all things DC. So if you like Batman, Superman, pretty much any DC superhero-related uh, film or, or project, that is the show for you to be following. We drop new episodes every two weeks, and it's just a, a great time. Uh, uh, they've been on the show on this show a number of times, and they're always uh, they're always great conversationalists, and uh, we just have a, a fun time uh, talking about. All things DC, especially now with the uh, anticipation for the uh, the Flash movie, which is just a few short weeks away. I'll be seeing it in under two weeks, but uh, I'd strongly encourage you to give that show uh, a follow. Uh, you know, if you haven't had your fill of me, there's another opportunity uh, over there. But uh, certainly, uh, Chris and Anthony uh, they bring much more to the uh, to the conversation than I. So uh, I'm just happy to uh, to be along for the ride. But uh, I love uh, love doing it with them, and and uh, I would encourage you to uh, give it a follow and give it a listen. Alrighty, so let's wind the clock back. It's 1980. Star Wars has come out in 1977. It is the biggest movie of all time, the highest grossing movie of all time. It has changed the way movies are made, the way movies are marketed, the way they are merchandised. It has changed audiences' uh, reaction to films. It it is a a full-fledged, 100% all-American blockbuster. I mean, th- this movie was on top of the world. Even if you if you were maybe not a fan of Star Wars, you could still marvel at its technical its technical achievements and its uh, ability to engage audiences in, in the wonder and, and majesty of storytelling. So, a sequel was was definitely inevitable, uh, at least in the eyes of George Lucas after the success of this film. And that was part of what he had had been banking on 
was to be able to not only make the first film, but then have it be successful enough that he could make two more films to complete his trilogy. Because initially, Star Wars started out as one movie that he then broke into into three parts. And of course, there was rewrites and, and revisions along the way. But he still had two other parts left out there uh, on the shelf, so to speak, and he wanted to complete his grand story. So Star Wars comes out. It's a huge hit. All this money that is made, all this money that's that's coming in from merchandising, and George Lucas decides we're going to go forward. We're going to we're going to make the sequel. He self finances the film. It starts out at around a eighteen twenty million dollar budget. Soon becomes a thirty million dollar budget and ran over schedule. There was a lot of technical challenges along the way, but by the uh, by the end of it, May twenty fifth, nineteen eighty. Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back is headed to theaters. Now, sort of look at this in two ways. Sequels sequels could be viewed as pre-The Empire Strikes Back and post-The Empire Strikes Back. Prior to 1980, I can only find, and I've done some research, done some digging, there are only two sequels, in my view, that are worthy of being titled as great or, 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 or as surpassing or matching the original films. And, and certainly you know, there have been dozens of James Bond films up to this point, certainly um, a, a lot of uh, Planet of the Ape films. But in terms of sequels that were not only well-made movies, but were able to continue the story in a way that felt fresh and innovative. And the only two that I can come up with, uh, uh, really, in that time frame, is in 1935, you have The Bride of Frankenstein, and then in 1974, The Godfather Part Two, arguably uh, another great sequel. So that's really that's really it. Again, sure, there were there were plenty of, of other films, twos and threes. By uh, 1980, The Planet of the Apes was up to about four films. So I mean, it wasn't like sequels weren't commonplace, but other than the two that I just mentioned, Frankenstein and, and The Godfather, not no sequel had managed to match or surpass the film. Cer- uh, certainly not in terms of uh, financial uh, quality, but more importantly from a storytelling quality. Uh, at that point, very few sequels, with the other than the two I had mentioned, managed to be innovative. They were largely rehashes or, or repeats, if you will, of, of the prior films. Now, post-1980, our movie landscape has been mined by many, many, many sequels. And with many of these films in their own rights becoming more famous and, frankly, beloved than the films that inspired them. I mean, you think Aliens, Terminator 2, Judgment Day, Spider-Man 2, Before Sunset, The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, The Dark Knight... Etc. Etc. Now, sequels today are, are mainstream and largely factor into uh, a movie studio's thinking, especially when it comes to franchises. You think Batman, Superman, etc. Now, of course, today, if a film makes even a dollar worth of worth of profit, it's all but certain to be given a green light on a sequel, if not a succeeding trilogy. Um, I just cite as a recent. Example: Halloween 2018 came out, huge, huge success, made over 250 million dollars worldwide, and 
thus was uh, given two more uh, follow-up sequels. So just sort of illustrate uh, the mind, uh, the mind, uh, the mindset. Now, uh, in some cases, the first films uh, are, are meant to kind of become springboards in a way. I'm talking really today. You know, it's the the first film almost exists to to set up a second and third film. Uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe would fall into this category, I feel, and has largely been predicated on sequel longevity with each one leading to its uh, successive uh, follow-up and then some. I think it goes without saying that sequels today are, are largely a studio's bread and butter, but in 1980, shockingly few were made, and those that were made only were existing uh, or existed to cash in on the success of the first one, authoring nothing more in terms of story or, or delivery. Think of, of uh, Jaws 2 as a prime example of that. An entertaining film in its own right, but but largely hitting the familiar beats and, and callbacks to the original film while offering nothing new or exciting save for a great final send-off uh, performance of Chief Brody by Roy Scheider. Come 1980... That mindset has changed, and The Empire Strikes Back is responsible for that change. Now, as, as much as Star Wars changed the movie industry in, in 1977, I feel that Empire cemented the Star Wars saga not only as a, as a mainstay in terms of pop culture. It sort of certified that Star Wars wasn't just a, a flash in the pan or a lightning in the bottle kind of a movie, but it also retooled uh, the whole movie storytelling process, and that is something that has lasted right up into this day. Now, picture this. The first film in a, in a series, or, or a potential series, if you will, introduces our characters in the situation. By the end of the film, they've gone through a journey, but have emerged victorious. All's well and bright. Next, we find ourselves in the follow-up. We find our characters in this installment beaten or on the run. All is seemingly lost by the time the credits roll. And then, you get to the third film. The challenge is faced, the force is conquered, and everyone more or less lives happily Ever after. Now that's that is drama. That is that is a three act structure, and that is the storytelling approach that Star Wars did not pioneer in any ways. I mean, this goes back generations and generations, but certainly made mainstream with audiences beginning in 1980. I sort of point to many of the James Bond films of that era, which were were more just one sequel after the, after the other. There was no overarching story or connective tissue outside of, say, Roger Moore or Sean Connery appearing uh, in one film to the next. Um, in this particular case, Star Wars says we're going to reshuffle the deck. Not only are we going to bring all the characters back and everybody that we know and love, but we're going to heighten the stakes. We're going to put them in an entirely new situation, put them in a hole, uh, metaphorically, and force them to find a way to get, their self, get themselves out of it. And that's going to be more compelling and more interesting than just doing a reheat, if you will, or, or all the familiar playbacks of the, of the original film. Now, if the original Star Wars was a crowd-pleaser, a rousing crowd-pleaser, then Empire was, by contrast, 
a darker psychological film that that charted the story and our main characters into an unknown region. And the result, I feel, is not only a a superb and, frankly, stellar sequel uh, to a great first film, but in its own right, a phenomenal film that in some ways can stand on its own and certainly is regarded, at the very least, as one of the greatest movies ever made. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the success of The Empire Strikes Back was not a given. And even though some audiences and critics at the time were, were mixed on the film, any, any negativity at all did not dampen Star Wars' box office receipts or, or, or interest in it culturally. I mean, certainly it did not uh, exceed the box office returns of the original. Star Wars would still hold that title until 1982 with the release of E.T., but nevertheless, in terms of profitability and, and overall gross, Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back was in a class all of its own. Now, interestingly enough, prior to this film, sequels were, were largely viewed as letdowns. You know, even with the best of intentions, a sequel was never going to reach the heights of, of an original film. And I would argue that while Star Wars, the original, is a good movie, Empire is what made Star Wars a staying power in terms of pop culture in movie history. And so why do I say that? Why, why do I have this feeling? Well, in many ways, it succeeds where so many sequels fell short at that time, and frankly, uh, where a lot of sequels have fallen short even today. I mean, Star Wars provided a blueprint that a lot have, have emulated uh, to varying success, but none have been able to, to necessarily replicate. I mean, it's, it's far and few between. I mean, sequels today are, are commonplace, but to really capture what The Empire Strikes Back, I want to take us on a, on a real deep dive into this film and just explain why I feel this is more than just your average popcorn sequel. This is a piece of cinema. Now, as I said last week in Jaws 2, it's a fine film in its own right. It's entertaining and it's thrilling uh, and certainly can be viewed as a nice companion piece to, to Jaws. But it is by no means, in my view, a superior film or even a, a sequel that matches the magnitude of the original. Now, now, what did Empire, what did Empire make happen? What was the, what was the result? Well, certainly the film, in terms of its scope, is larger. The the action is more spectacular. We visit new planets. You think of the ice world of Hoth. We go to Bespin and Cloud City, or the swampy world of Dagobah. The original Star Wars film and George Lucas, kind of in, intentionally designed it this way in order to save money in terms of production cost, the original Star Wars film pretty much takes place in three locations. You have the desert planet of Tatooine, you have the, uh, the, 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 the battle station, the Death Star, and then you have the ship of the Millennium Falcon. And, and that's pretty much it. Everything else, it's all just sort of done in, in, in creative cutting or, or, or clever camera work. But Empire is so much larger. It feels like the canvas has been expanded in a way that we're no longer just confined to a small pocket corner of the galaxy, but we are out in a, in a brave, new, and, and frankly, uncharted world. Now, what else makes this film work? You've got humor, and you've got romance. You've got this 
real clever banter between Han Solo and, and Princess Leia that leads to an organic uh, love story that is ultimately implicit in its delivery. There's never a moment where it's like, oh, you know, Princess Leia is like, oh, Han, or, or Han is like, oh, Leia. Like, it, it's everything is subtle. And one of the great moments in the movie that turned out to be improvised is the scene. And full disclosure right now, spoiler, uh, spoiler alert ahead. So if you have not seen this film and you'd like to savor the dramatic experience, I would suggest you uh, step away from the podcast and uh, return after you have... Uh, after you've watched it, but uh, putting that out there, uh, full disclosure about spoilers, during the scene on uh, on Cloud City in the carbon freezing chamber where Han Solo was going to be put into carbonite and then handed over to Jabba the Hutt, he and Princess Leia had this now iconic moment that was entirely improvised on the set. Initially, in the script, as as Han is being taken away and lowered into the to the freezing chamber, he says, or Leia says to him, "I love you," and he replies, "I love you too." And director Irving Kirshner and Harrison Ford both felt that there was something more that could be achieved out of this scene than just a, a throwaway cliche, another "I love you" moment. And so, what ends up happening is this is this line, this exchange, where Leia says, I love you, and Han's response is, I know. And it, it's it's one of those moments that you're like, okay, we, we've just, we've watched and captured the cinematic genius, because there's so much more said in the line, I know, than if it had been, I love you too. And that kind of gets to a, a, a bigger understanding of, of the characters and the situation, these people in this story have been through, been to hell and back, essentially. The film starts off, Leia is, is disgruntled and, and, un, and unhappy because Han is planning to leave. And he's going to leave the, the Rebel Alliance to go and pay off his debts to the, to the crime lord, Jabba the Hutt. And ultimately, because of the attack by the Empire, they're forced to escape together and sort of bonded through their shared misery and, 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 and threat of being on the run uh, from the Empire. And, of course, you know, they have little moments of, of intimacy, but it's always interrupted by the likes of C-3PO or just uh, the situation of, of trying to dodge the Empire. But we get this, this implication that, that these two characters care for each other, that they've grown to love each other, and in that moment... Of, of dire consequences, Leia confesses her love to him and he returns it with the acknowledgement of I know, meaning that I know you love you and by extension, I love you too. It, it, that's just a small moment, but it's a bigger moment because it illustrates just how deeper this film went than just a surface level exploration of the characters. Um, it, I mean, if there's any knock or criticism on the first Star Wars film, it's that largely the characters are sort of serving the, the, the set pieces in a way. This sort of, it's very much surface level uh, exploration of the characters. This movie, we really get to understand who these people are. And frankly, I think that's why they became even more beloved characters, because this film allowed us to have more intimate moments and moments of, of levity and, and humor 
you know, in addition to all of the excitement and, and action and, and drama. And, of course, speaking of, of drama, there is a twist in this film, one of the greatest in, in movie history, a, tw- a twist that not only changes everything we knew to be true up to that point, but essentially with just a single line puts the series in a bold and, and frankly, exciting direction. This becomes bigger than just a classic good versus evil struggle. It's a much more complex and, and morally ambiguous story than what we were treated to in, in the first film. So, so, so what is it? What, what makes this movie work? Is it the story? Is it the style? Is it the execution? And, and I believe it is all three components. The, the Empire Strikes Back has a superior story a, across the board for all the achievements in the first film, the technical achievements in terms of special effects and, and the, uh, the reestablishing of old themes, the first Star Wars is a straightforward adventure story. It's a, a classic hero's journey told through, through the lens of Luke Skywalker. It is self-contained with a beginning, middle, and an end. And, and it leaves the audience cheering at the end of the film when Luke blows, blows up the Death Star and Everybody gets their medals except except Chewbacca at the end, you know, sidebar and that. Um, but uh, it's spectacular. It's popcorn entertainment, but there there is a soul to it. Now, the Empire could have just said we're going to play copy and paste and and do the same thing with the sequel. Just maybe add a few more lightsaber battles or a few more dog fights in space. Uh, but no, no, they don't. Lucas did not want to settle for a copy-and-paste movie. This is a story with a beginning, with a middle, but no end. This movie ends on a cliffhanger. Now, talk about a bold move there. The sequel wasn't going to come out until three years. And at this point, yes, you had the success of the first film, but there was no immediate guarantee that The Empire Strikes Back was going to be this mega hit and guarantee the third film. Uh, it was you know, certainly a possibility, but even then, sequels were not what they are today. And so there was a lot, there was a lot riding on, on this particular film. And to, to take it in the, in the directions, I mean, I can't imagine a studio would have greenlit this film. And that sort of gets to a larger point. George Lucas self-financed this film with all the profits he made from the original Star Wars movie. He self-financed this film, which was considered a dangerously risky decision uh, by Hollywood standards to put your own money into a movie. But he wanted to have that influence. He wanted to have that control. And that was part of his victory from the first Star Wars movie was he was able to obtain all of the sequel rights, pretty much all the merchandising rights, and and left nothing for 20th Century Fox except a um, you know, a distribution uh, uh, agreement. But George Lucas you know, got what he wanted, and, and frankly, thank God, because a studio would have looked at The Empire Strikes Back and looked at it with how the film ends and said, uh-uh, no, we got to have more, more of, a, of a solution, more of, of a resolution than, a, than an open-ended film. But this was where the movie needed to go. It needed to go into the character's psyche. It needed to be uh, a darker exploit. And as I said, Empire takes, us, takes all the characters we know and love from the first film and puts them into dire jeopardy. 
we're treated into a battle into Luke's soul. This is really a psychological study in a lot of ways into what makes a hero and who can be a hero. In addition, we're seeing the survival, a fight for survival by by Han and, and Leia. And it really, you know, they serve as a as almost a a representation of the entire Rebel Alliance. We're we're following their story, but with the Empire gaining on them and, and chasing them across the galaxy, you really have the sense that okay, the the rebels are on the ropes. This is this could be it for them. And it it just elevates the stakes in a way that that was so much more riskier and and frankly bolder than just saying, well, we'll take it in a, in a slightly different direction, but everything will be happily ever after at the end. I mean, this was a, a great evolution in, in storytelling. And if the first Star Wars was so much about optimism and hope, then then Empire is a date with reality. It's an examination of one's past and frankly a blurring of the lines between hero and and villain and as i said before what is so spectacular about this film in many ways is the fact that it was bold enough to leave the ending open-ended i mean by the end of this movie luke skywalker has not only lost his hand in a sword fight but has learned that darth vader the personification of evil in the galaxy is in actuality, his father. And up until this point, we've been following Luke on his journey to become a Jedi, to be to be just like his father, the father he thought he knew, this noble and wise Jedi. And all of a sudden, with this one line, everything is turned on its head. And it leaves Luke questioning the Force, the Jedi, but ultimately himself and what I like about it is the movie doesn't end with giving you answers. It it leaves Luke, it leaves all the characters with more questions and answers. And frankly, that I'm sure added to the debate and the discussion around this film, surrounding this film, and after this film about what is going to happen next. Where is the story going to go? I mean, that was a perfect hook instead of just, you know, oh, well, everything's all tied up pretty much, but we'll leave a few loose ends for the final. No, I mean, everything is on the table at the end of this movie. Our, our heroes are, are defeated spiritually and literally. Han Solo is captured and taken to Jabba the Hutt. I mean, the Empire has delivered a near-fatal blow to, to the Rebel Alliance during the Battle of, of Hoth, a, a literal strike back, if you will. Victory has been dashed, and, and hope seems to be a distant memory. And, and how, how could this film have, have resonated? How could it have worked? I mean, you think of you know audiences now with people you know reacting in, in, in almost fisticuffs if a movie doesn't go their, their expected way. I mean, talk about a film to subvert expectations entirely. I mean, Darth Vader is Luke's father. It doesn't get more subversive than, than that decision to make Luke Skywalker out to be um, you know out to be the, 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 the son of the most evil man in the, in the galaxy. And as I said earlier, interestingly, the the result, the reviews for this film were were mixed. They were not negative. And I ha I'll leave in the um, in the show notes some of the the reviews just to sort of point out uh, sort of how laughable these critiques were. Because obviously, this film has become beloved. It is beloved. It's one of the greatest sequels ever made, and and many many fans favored 
Star Wars films. Uh, but but at the time, audiences were, were somewhat unsure how to read it because it wasn't a conventional sequel. It was it was thought-provoking. It wasn't a, a generic crowd-pleasing spectacle like the original, but instead a darker examination of, of the soul and, and psyche of these characters. Not a, not a remake, not a, a repeat playing, uh, but a bigger step in, in, in terms of telling a larger story. Now, when it was all said and done, the film made over $500 million worldwide, which was amazing. You think of for 1980s, uh, for a 1980 movie at a time when the country was mired in, in a recession and there was a lot of uncertainty in the world. And, and certainly this is not a an uplifting uh, movie compared to the first film. I mean, the heroes are defeated, more or less, at the end of this film. To make that much money, I mean, by today's standards, nearly a $2 billion movie. I mean, I think it just illustrates what a damn good sequel uh, this film was and, and frankly still still remains. I mean, this is, this is the blueprint. This is the model you want to follow in terms of elevating your story uh, to, the, uh, to the next level. But the impact could be argued it's, it's felt more than, more than just money. This was not a cheap follow-up. It's not, as I said, this is not the Jaws 2, if you will. Uh, you know, it's not the best hits of, of the original. This is ultimately a narrative thread in a much larger and more impactful story. Empire made us care about these characters we first met in, in the first film. And I, and I keep saying the phrase, it didn't just copy and paste what we saw from the original playbook. It, it subverted expectations. I mean, again, the fact that Han Solo is, is essentially put on ice in this film. Now, there was some interesting behind-the-scenes uh, uh, dealings because... After the first film, Carrie Fisher and Mark Hamill had both signed uh, a contract to appear in potentially two more sequels. Harrison Ford did not. And so this this story situation was actually created out of the possibility that Harrison Ford uh, may not have returned for a third film. So kind of, you know, creative thinking on your feet, if you will. But I mean, again, just from that situation, I mean, you know, a lot of kids at the time wanted to be like Han Solo. He was this cool, this cool smuggler, and yet he's he's sidelined in this film. He becomes he becomes fodder of, in in Darth Darth Vader's plan, and, and is captured, and ultimately his fate is left up in the air because they don't rescue him at the end of the film. He's taken off to the clutches of of Jabba the Hutt, and and sort of on a more thematic level, this film helped our understanding of, of the Star Wars world. The Force, the Jedi, the Light, the Dark Side, all of those points are established in the first film. But it's Empire that made these theme, these themes and, and ideas concrete. And I think the best sort of understanding of the Force comes not from a living, breathing actor, but from one of the best characters ever created. And that is, of course, the, the two-foot-tall puppet voiced and and operated by Frank Oz. And, of course, the character I'm talking about is Yoda. I love his whole creation. I love his whole his whole shtick in the movie. I love how the most powerful Jedi in the galaxy, the most powerful Jedi ever to li- ever live is not a is not a human, but this little frog like 
creature. And I mean, just from uh, sort of movie puppetry, movie movie magic, if you will, Yoda looks and acts like a real creature. And, and just to kind of give you a an interesting aside, George Lucas was so was so taken by by the performance and, and the creation of by Frank Oz, who had worked interestingly with with Jim Henson's group, uh, uh, you know, and and of the Muppet fame. Uh, George Lucas wanted to get him nominated for an Academy Award, but the Academy did not consider puppetry to be a, a worthy uh, a, 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 a feat of, of acting. But I think it really illustrates just how important and frankly impactful this uh, this character and this whole situation was to the film because if it didn't work and George Lucas has alluded to it if the audience began laughing at, at, at Yoda the movie would have would have fallen apart uh, but it doesn't and as I said the our understanding of the themes of, of Star Wars frankly come from this character prior to Yoda's creation the role of mentor teacher Jedi master all of that was with the Obi-Wan character portrayed by, uh, by, by Alec Guinness. And as, as Star Wars uh, unfolded, Lucas decided to sacrifice his character in order to sort of raise the stakes in the first film. And so with his character sidelined, he no longer had a, a mentor character to, to train Luke. And so that led to the creation of, of, uh, of Yoda, which kind of to tie back to a point I made, I made earlier, that was really the, the bless, I mean, one of the many blessings, if you will, that, that the original script for Star Wars was so large and vast that it made sense to split things up. And as a result, more creativity and, and, and innovation came uh, along the way. So, you know, now you get this two little, two foot tall uh, puppet who's now going to teach Luke in the ways of the Jedi. And, and frankly, he nearly steals the show uh, in this movie. I mean, with his inverted speaking patterns, you know, do or do not, there is no try. Like, I mean, it's all part of the, part of the lexicon today of, of wisdom and, and, and mentors. But I mean, Yoda really demonstrates as a character both knowledge and, and wisdom while trying to prepare Luke for all the trials that, that lay ahead of him. And like I said, the, the, the film could have flopped if that puppet looked chintzy or, or fake or, or, you know, like, you know, Miss Piggy or something, you know, running around in, in Jedi robes uh, or, or Kermit running around in, in Jedi robes. But instead, what we get is a, a character that, that acts and talks and, frankly, looks like a real living, breathing creature and it just captures our imaginations and that's something that I think was lost years later when the character was digitized even though uh, certainly you know it, it, it in the later prequel Star Wars films you know they, they went to great lengths to, to to make him look as realistic as possible there is still something authentic about about Yoda being uh, a puppet versus just a, a digital a digital creation um, but but like as I mentioned, all of what was said about the themes of, of the Force and the Jedi, all that was sort of initiated with the Alec Guinness character of Obi-Wan in the first film. And he kind of spelled out the fundamental mythology, if you will, of this universe. But Yoda brings it all to life. I mean, the, the words carry more weight when they're coming from a two-foot-tall puppet as opposed to an acclaimed British actor. And there's you know, no, no disrespect to the late... 
Alec Guinness, his presence in the first film definitely contributed to its uh, to it, it being taken serious. But uh, I think it just goes to show that sometimes the most uh, unusual ways can uh, can be the most inventive and can have the the, the greatest impact in, in terms of believability. And I mean, Yoda as a as a character in the movie, coupled uh, you know, which with with Mark Hamill's uh, unbelievable perform, you know, just incredible performance and in, in, in sort of making Yoda come to life, um, it, it just sort of adds a whole other layer to this to this universe and to this world and i like how at the start of the of the uh, of the scene yoda is presented as this crazy creature and we have no idea uh, as an audience and luke doesn't know that that this weird little frog man is in fact this jedi master but it's all part of yoda's teachings to try to you know instill luke a sense of of, of patience and and virtue as opposed to always rushing off to a uh, to face adventure and that's again just you could literally write a whole book and i'm sure there are of yoda's teachings and 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 pearls of wisdom um you know from this movie and and interestingly you know they're all you know very common place in our our society but i think when you add the inverted way of speaking and it coming from a a two foot tall puppet it, it just makes it all the more impactful and and frankly uh, frankly, memorable, but I, I, it should be noted that Mark Hamill's performance I- is another component to it because he 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 makes Yoda come to life because he's the only one playing off of him. And you know, if it had been like a hammy wink wink at the camera performance, that too could have damaged it. But you you believe in Mark Hamill's uh, performance; it's very convincing and, and authentic, and. It just sort of instills this organic chemistry between these two characters, even though one is uh, just a puppet and the other, of course, is a is a person. But the the large premise of this film and really the central plot is the obsessive hunt for Luke Skywalker by Darth Vader. I mean, by now at this point, Darth Vader was seen as the personification of all evil, and his black robe and mask. I mean, he just he was this this movie boogeyman in a way and everybody loved Darth Vader after the first film he really took over the entire narrative um as opposed to how it may have been originally envisioned if you listen to George Lucas's breakdown of the story before the first film was made Vader was there but but he wasn't this dominant figure that he became throughout the uh throughout the other two films and this movie I mean, if, if again, if the first movie introduced us to Darth Vader, The Empire Strikes Back cemented him as one of, if not the greatest movie villains uh, of all time. And throughout this film, he is a man on a mission. He is obsessed to to find Luke Skywalker, and and we're thinking, okay, he's going to try. He wants to kill Luke because you know. Luke is the good guy, Vader is, is the villain, and he sees him as a threat to the Empire in his own existence. And, of course, Vader goes to great lengths in this movie to uh, to capture Luke, and it's only undone and, and really turned on its head with that revelation that he makes to Luke that he is, in fact, his father. I mean, I, I would love to be able to go back in time and be an audience member in 1980 
unknowing of what is going to transpire, uh, transpire on screen and just witness that moment firsthand because now it's it's of course all part of the all part of the the cinematic landscape everybody knows the the line i am your father even if they've never seen star wars it just sort of it's it's ingrained in our in our cultural zeitgeist but i mean talk about a wtf moment i mean i can only imagine how audiences felt and, and reacted at that time and of course you know now with such a revelation people would take to twitter and be screaming and, and hooting and hollering but i mean talk about a great a great twist of a Vader not only being Luke's real father, but it completely altering the narrative that we've been following. Again, that goes back to what I mentioned earlier about subverting the narrative, subverting expectations. Um, you know, Vader is obsessed with Luke, not because he wants to kill him, but because he wants him to join forces together so they can team up and destroy the Emperor, and then in his own words, rule the galaxy as father and son. Now, of course, Prior to this, we've been following Luke on his journey trying to become a Jedi, where in his own words from the first film, he says, I want to learn the ways of the Force and become a Jedi like my father. And now we're faced with the reality of the man he's trying to become, the man he wants to honor and emulate, is in fact this monster. He is the personification of, of evil, this, this force in the galaxy bent on domination. And it's, a, it's really a, a wonderful moment not only for for the story and being this great twist but it really calls into question Luke's journey and his life choices up until up until that point i mean now he has to ask is this his destiny too is he simply following the path of his father and and worse yet he is alone i mean luke goes through hell and back in this particular film he is alone by the end of it he he has lost his first mentor obi-wan but not only is obi-wan gone obi-wan never told him the truth about his father so i mean luke's literally at hell's door and, and being tempted by the devil who just happens to be his father and and rather than go in he basically says i'd rather die than than join forces with you and and become the very thing I've been fighting to to oppose, and and yet just when he's about ready to throw in the towel, he is rescued uh, by his friends, mainly Leia, who of course has yet to be revealed as his uh, as his sister. A and yet, you know, Luke lives to fight another day. But it's not a it's not a hero's uh, celebration. There is no uh, awards or medals being given out at the end of this film. Uh, Luke has gone through. A journey, and it's really an emotional and psychological one. Uh, whereas, if the first film is kind of a condensed hero's journey, this one is a much more expansive narrative that kind of puts the character on on an arc where he starts out thinking everything is going according to plan, and then ultimately, by the end of the film, realizing that the world is much larger than uh, than he might have realized. I mean, he's no longer this impatient kid rushing off to face adventure now he's really completed his first trial he understands the larger world and though he may not know his place yet the rose-colored glasses are are off the idealized version of his father is no more and he really has to decide who he wants to become and of course it, it leaves more questions than uh you know more questions than than answers there is no resolution at the end of empire strikes back but there's there's determination and that is that is the climax the film in in a lot of ways 
is the end of childhood, so to speak. If the first film is a callback to the sunny optimism of your youth, the Empire Strikes Back is is the end of it. It's it's the the next phase in your life, the entering of adulthood. It's the first step into a world larger larger than yourself. And I mean, you just sort of look at what happens to to Luke throughout the course of this film, and he really is the central the central figure. At the start of the movie, rather than going off to to join his friends uh, and and fight the Empire, he he leaves to continue his training as a Jedi, because that's what he believes is the right path for him. Now, of course, by the end of the film, his whole decision to become a Jedi is thrown into question, thanks to the revelation of, of, da- of Dad Vader. Uh, but, but in addition to that, he now has realized that there's, there's more to this than just himself, that, that he has to think about his friends. He has to think about others. And I think one of the interesting things about the end of the movie, again, this goes back to the uh, the implied nature of the story. Luke does not reconcile with the fact that his father is Darth Vader by the end of the film. There, there's no little scene where he's like, well, I guess he was. No, it's all, it's like, we'll deal with that when the time comes. The first moment, that, you know, the first reaction is, got to f- save Han, got to go rescue Han Solo from, from, from Jabba the Hutt. And I think that is a perfect execution of the film's story. Spectacle is second in this film. There's plenty of action. There's rousing moments. But the real strength of it lies in the execution of the character struggles. Uh, character struggles. All of them realize throughout the course of this film that, that choices have consequences. I mean, again, take Han Solo as an example he has had this life of smuggling that's been hinted at from the previous movie. He's had this uh, inability to pay off his debts, and all of that comes back to bite him when they're captured by Darth Vader, who ends up m- cutting a deal with Han's friend Lando Calrissian, played by Billy D. Williams, to essentially sell the, who sells them out. Uh, Lando is introduced uh, in, in near the end of the second act. Uh, as a as a friend of Han, who's there to to help them out when they go to Cloud City to get repairs made in the Millennium Falcon, uh, but he has behind the scenes cut a deal with Vader to essentially betray his his friends in order to uh, kind of get protection, if you will, from from the Empire. But as Vader's plot is revealed and and Han becomes uh, imprisoned in Carbonite and later, uh, you know discovers they've all been used as pawns by Vader in order to get Luke. Uh, Lando has this this revelation and this change of of heart and he realizes the mistakes he made. And so even though he's he's betrayed his friend and essentially sold his his uh his friend and new friends out to the to the the, the dark lord of the Sith, he tries to make amends and ends up becoming uh, a part of the the team and and realizes the error of his ways and, and discovers that his consequences uh, ha- have actions and again just sort of just sort of illustrates how each character's choices come back to to, to haunt them in some way or another or or make revelations about who they are and ultimately who they uh, may want to be or not want to be and that frankly goes to Darth Vader who is of course in the first film presented as this dark evil guy who ultimately uh, in this film that's cemented i mean he's the great movie villain of all time the dark lord 
of the Sith, but in the you know first half of this movie, we think he's just on this obsessive mission to to get Luke and or capture or kill Luke. But it's much more complicated than that, as the the twist of Darth Vader's uh, parentage uh, is is revealed. Vader doesn't want to kill Luke. He doesn't want to capture him. He doesn't want to lock him away. He wants to convert him to his side. He wants to to have his son join him so that together they can rule the galaxy together. I mean, it's it's evil and it's and it's a a great Machiavellian plot, but it sort of puts Vader in a much different light than just being this this bad guy, the 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 heavy. He has his own motivations too. And there's a great scene, of course, paints the picture of the larger narrative that's at, at play here with uh, this being the second act in a, in a three-part story. But Vader, by the end of this film, is a changed character, too. He's been on this obsessive mission to find his son and, and, and bring him over to his side. And when Luke makes the, the decision to reject his father's uh, offer to, to join him and, and basically says, I'd rather die than, than, than be with you, it kind of calls into question Vader's own powers and his own decisions. And throughout this film, Vader's been been choking and, and killing anybody who disagrees with him and gets in his way. And at the very end of the film, he's, of course, shaken by the fact that his son wants nothing to do with him. And then when he senses his presence and discovers he's, he's alive, uh, there's a mad dash to try and capture the the Millennium Falcon, but they get out of the the range of the Imperial ship at the end of the film, and this uh, this one admiral is like holding his breath, thinking, "Okay, I'm dead. I'm going to die." And we're meant to think Vader's going to kill him, but he doesn't. And and you see at that moment, even though again we're not going to get a full payoff for another three films, you begin to see at that moment Vader questions his own powers, his own strength. I mean. Forget the fact he couldn't, you know, the, the, the ship got away. All of his, all of his, his training, all of his, his teachings have, have shown him that the dark side is the only way to go. And, and now Luke doesn't want anything to do with him and sort of calls into questions his own life choices, which of course will be explored in greater detail in, in the next film. And of course, uh, in, in the prequel films years later. But again, just sort of shows that all these characters are in a much different position and, and frankly can be seen in a different light from the start of the movie to the very end of the movie. And I think that's that's illustrative of a, of a, of a powerful story that takes them from one position to the next and through situations and through choices reveals who these people are and in some cases they don't like who they are and so therefore they have to change or, or start a new course and that right there i've said it before and i'll say it once again to put a real fine point on it that is the mark of a great sequel that is the mark of a great film the the point i made earlier and i'll make it again sequels up until this point, were largely cash grabs that had about as much resonance and staying power as a stick-on tattoo. And Empire came in and said, no, we're going to do something more meaningful and impactful, and it stays with you. I mean, there's a reason this film has been analyzed and sort of discussed at length and critiqued because there's so much going on with it. It's not just a straightforward Here's our situation. How are our heroes going to solve it? It really gets into the to the psyche. And, of course, now it's commonplace, 
with sequels, especially in trilogies, to to raise the stakes. But I mean, sequels are now, by conventional wisdom, darker and 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 make more unexpected uh, revelations. But it had to all start somewhere, and Empire Strikes Back is where it started. Without it, I don't think you have Terminator 2, Skyfall, or the, the myriad of Marvel films without the innovation and execution of The Empire Strikes Back. I mean, this is a perfect movie. I know that gets thrown around a lot, but, but in terms of the story, our characters, their decisions, everything is flawless. Now, we may not say, oh, that, you know, they made a dumb move uh, deciding to go there when they should have gone, you know, down another route. But, like, everything is grounded within the reality of the story. And that creates believability in situations that, that invest us in the journey of, of the characters that you ultimately can't wait to see how it ends. And, I mean, it's, it's a master class. I mean, Irv- Irving Kirstner is, was, was a phenomenal director for this film. George Lucas made a, a brilliant choice going to one of his old mentors from his days at uh, USC Film School to helm this film. And interestingly, he had turned it down. He didn't want to do it because he felt he could never uh, match the, the greatness of the original film. Well, he, he, he matched it and frankly succeeded it, uh, exceeded it because this is, whenever you talk about great sequels, you hear The Godfather Part Two. You you might hear The Dark Knight, but you're definitely going to hear The Empire Strikes Back. This is a perfect movie, and, it, and as I said, it's a master class in both suspense, thrills, motivations, and, and ultimately twist uh, in storytelling that, that never feel cheap. Everything feels like it's building towards something, and of course that something that it was building towards is, is Return of the Jedi, uh, the next film. But if, if Star Wars changed the way movies were made, then, then The Empire Strikes Back changed how sequels could be told. They could be more than just reheats of, of the previous installments. They could be something different and new. And frankly, this is a, much, a must-watch film. I, I don't care if you're a Star Wars fan or not. This is a, much, uh, a must-watch film and, and frankly worthy of celebration in anyone's movie library. Even if you're not a fan of, of, of science fiction or, or in this particular case space fantasy I, I recommend the original star wars trilogy uh, original trilogy but especially empire because it is so much more sophisticated and and crafted than than many of its contemporaries at the time uh, in terms of story and 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 execution but but as what can be done what can be accomplished through through storytelling and how you can subvert uh, expectations in in a way that are not sort of like rubbing it in the face of the audience, but but bringing them along. And yes, I, I am I am calling out another Star Wars sequel years years down the line, uh, the Last Jedi. The Empire Strikes Back has been has been imitated. It has uh, it has been copied, but it has never been replicated. And I think sequels that have gone on to surpass the original film in terms of story and execution. All of them owe a hat tip to the genius that is The Empire Strikes Back. This film and, and sort of took that that road and applied it to their own story. It took that map, if you will, and applied it to your own story. Now everyone thinks, oh, you're just going to have a dark sequel and, and the stakes have to be higher. And all of that is true, but you can't do all that 
without a story. And that's what The Empire Strikes Back did, is it unfolded a much larger story as opposed to, well, this is just the next adventures of Luke Skywalker. No, it's a, it's a, a narrative thread in a much larger story that reaches a, a stirring and, and wondrous climax in the next film. All right, with that, I think I will stop. Uh, I think I've filled you in enough with regards to The Empire Strikes Back. Do hope you've enjoyed today's episode. I'll be back with one more installment in this uh, this sequel uh, miniseries, if you will. Next week, going to be diving into or putting onto the chopping block, shall we say, horror sequels. Uh, you want to talk about a talk about a cash grab? Horror movies have definitely uh, gone to that well, the sequel well, many, many times. And I'm going to share with you uh, some of my thoughts on on some of the the great and some of the not-so-great horror sequels. But uh, that I will save for next week. In any event, thank you, as always, for tuning in. I'll be back next week, and we'll do this all over again for the love of movies. <laughs>